with you this morning. And yes, we know that many are out on spring break. And I looked over at the weather this week here, and it looks disgustingly rainy all week. So remember, we all have to have the same story. Sunny and 70 all week. You should have been here. Um, so before I kind of dive into our passage today, as we continue in the look at the life of David, I just want to remind you, or if you weren't here last week, um, to let you know what, what happened uh, in the 11th chapter. So in the 11th chapter, um, the armies of Israel, are, they're out and out to war, and David has decided to stay back in Jerusalem. And so while he's there, he kind of gets off the couch in the afternoon, we're told. He goes up to the roof, and as he's up there walking around, he sees Bathsheba. And he seeks to see who she is, and then he, he calls for her, and they come, and they lie together, we're told. And then she becomes pregnant. And when David realizes this, after Bathsheba has told him, he sends for Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, to come back from the battle and He's hopeful that she will go home or that he will go home to Bathsheba, but he does not. Again and again, David tries to talk him into going home to be with Bathsheba, but he refuses to do so. And so finally, David then writes a message and gives it to Uriah and says, go back to the battle. And the message that he sent to Joab, the commander, is make sure that Uriah is killed in this battle. And that is exactly what happens. Uriah is killed killed. And after a week of mourning, then finally Bathsheba comes and David marries her. This is an act, as we said last week when we looked at it, this is a violent act that breaks a covenant. And that in many ways, it seems as if it is an act that David is going to get away with. Except for the very final verse of that chapter, which says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And it is with that phrase that we are all of a sudden beginning to realize that David is not going to get away with these acts of sin and brokenness. And so we are going to look now at the first part of chapter 12. And let's begin with that last verse. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his meager fare and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for the guest who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, "'As the Lord lives!' The man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. 
Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added as much more. Why? Have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, for you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, I will raise up trouble against you from within your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this very son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, Now the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child that is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we pray this morning that you would be with us in what is yet again a difficult passage, an uncomfortable passage, a painful story. And we pray that in the midst of that, that we would see your light and your hope and your forgiveness. And I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. Well, if you were here last week, you may have noticed in that first verse something that reminded you of what we heard last week, and that was the word send. Remember last week we said that David was sending again and again and again, and it was this great reminder of the power that David had. David could simply say something, and it was accomplished. He could write a note, and it was done. This was the power that David had, and there's almost a sense as you're reading the 11th chapter that David must be almost all-powerful because he has so much ability to just have everyone be controlled by what he does. And so from the very beginning of this chapter, though, all of a sudden we notice that something changes, which is that this time we are told someone is sending. But it is not David who is sending. We are told it is the Lord who is sending Nathan, his prophet. And Nathan is very bright because when he comes to confront the all-powerful David, he does so in a remarkably subversive way. He begins by telling him a story. There's a story, he says, you heard this, about a rich man and a poor man. The rich man had so many flocks, so many 
herds, right? I mean, he was just, uh, it was just an overabundance of what the rich man had. The poor man had only one little ewe lamb. And we're told that it was like a daughter to him. It ate with him. It drank with him. It slept by him. It was clearly incredibly precious to him. And all of a sudden, an out-of-town traveler comes in to visit the wealthy man, and the wealthy man did not want to give up one of his many herd, many sheep that he had. And so instead, what does he do? He goes and he takes the one lamb that the poor man had, and he takes it home, and he kills it, and he offers it up to the guest. As we begin to think about that story, as we, the listeners, if you can imagine kind of hearing the story, maybe this was your first time, but as you hear this story, it's very clear the injustice of it, right? And and we begin to feel our own kind of ire raising, right? I mean, how in the world could this rich man do this incredibly horrible action? And we just begin to get angry. And of course, we're not alone in this. David was also getting angry. In fact, David was so mad at this rich man, that he said, this man should really die. And it's this fascinating story that as listeners, depending upon whether you like conflict or not, you enjoy this part of the tale. Because if you like conflict and you hear this, you know beyond the shadow of a doubt, of course, that David is, or that Nathan is talking about David, right? And so if you're looking for some good conflict, you're leaning in right now because you're thinking to yourself, oh, this is going to be good. As soon as this table is turned, David is about to get it. If you don't like conflict very much and you can see the train that is coming, all of a sudden you're like kind of covering up your eyes like, oh, this is going to be so embarrassing. This is going to be awkward and you don't want to look, but you also kind of can't stop. And so you're kind of doing this and you just begin to get stressed and you can feel the sweat because you know that David has it coming to him. But before we get to that place, before Nathan turns the table, I want to point something out which is, this is a a great reminder to us, the story and then David's response to it, of how good we are at seeing the sin of others. Aren't we really good at that? I mean, it's like a spiritual gift. The vast majority of us are able to very clearly see the unrighteousness of others. In fact, one commentator said, you know, it's, it's actually kind of a good thing. It's, it's almost innate in most of us to be able to have a sense of righteousness and justice. And we're really good at seeing that in other people. Because, of course, what we also see clearly in this little story, when we see the response of David, is that we are reminded that while we are really good at seeing it in others, we are really poor at seeing our own sin and brokenness and injustice. We are easily self-deceived, are we not? I was thinking about this in more pedestrian ways, right? The ways in which we easily deceive ourselves. I mean, you know, I I think about my own eating, right? You know, I I always think I'm eating really, really healthy and that I'm really, I got this down, you know, and I'm I'm doing well. And every once in a while, someone will say, well, you know what? You should just track it and see. I'm like, okay, fine. I feel good. No problem. And I'll track it and and I'll be like, holy cow, my donut to carrot ratio is way off. 
Like, I feel like I'm doing it. Like, if you were just to say, you eating up? Like, yeah. And then you actually have like a third-party tracking system and all of a sudden it sheds light, right? Or what about a budget, right? I mean, oftentimes I'd be like, oh, yeah, you know what? I think we're doing pretty good. We're spending money well. We're, you know, we're not, we're not being frivolous with it. I'd be like, okay, great. Why don't you just track it for a month? No problem. I'm not afraid. I'll track that thing for a month. And you track it and you're like, holy cow! How much money are we spending going out to eat and entertainment and all these things? And if you were to say, how do you feel? Like, I would have told you and it would have been like, you know, oh, yeah, I'm saving at least 80%. And then all of a sudden you shed that actual light and you begin to see, right? I mean, it's this, it's this fascinating way. And what's really interesting is that I do this usually about every year and every year I am surprised. Wouldn't you think? At some point, you would just be like, no, but it's like, as soon as I learn it, I feel it, and then I forget it. This is how easily we deceive ourselves. And of course, it is at least as easy to deceive ourselves about our own sin and our own brokenness, is it not? I love what Tim Keller says. He says that self-deception is not the worst thing we do, but it is the reason we can do the worst things that we do. Self-deception is not the worst thing we do, but it's the reason why we can do the worst things that we can do. I think that's important because when it comes to David, and you see what David did in this last chapter, you can think, well, this guy's clearly, I mean, he's just, uh, he's just a bad guy. But you know, the odds are quite good that he has rationalized this in a remarkable way. Oh, Look at all the hard work I've done for Israel over these years. Look how I've, I've changed it. Look how, how great it is. Why should I not be able to do what I want with whomever I want? Look how great I am. Or think about how, how could he kill Uriah? Well, if you think about it, I mean, look, you know, from David's perspective, if, if this were to get out, what had happened with him and Bathsheba, well, that would not be good. That would not just be not good for him. It would not be good for the whole country. The whole country looks to him. So, well, what's the death of one person in light of all of Israel? And so you're able to come up with these remarkable rationalizations that make no mistake about it, did not make any of it right. But it is this incredible opportunity, the incredible ways in which we begin to deceive ourselves in such a way that it makes it feel as if it must be right. I love what Keller goes on to say. He says this, and I hope you hear this. He says, that we have a seemingly infinite capacity to hide truth from our hearts when that truth is too painful or uncomfortable. We have an infinite capacity to hide truth from our hearts when that truth is too painful or uncomfortable. So Nathan begins to tell this story. And he does so because it helps to lower the defensiveness of David. But it doesn't just kind of stay there. Nathan doesn't just say, well, I just want you to think about that for a little bit. And, 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 and I want you to think about, you know, who that rich man could be. Can we think about that? He doesn't do that, does he? What does he say after doing all of this and after David says this man really should die? He then looks right at him and says, you are the man. And in that moment, this little story goes from being just something kind of nice and religious that allows us to feel a great amount of righteous indignation. And as I've said many times, there is no better feeling than righteous indignation over what somebody else is doing wrong. Amen. 
And we love that. And all of a sudden, it goes from this great, fun, kind of religious generalization, all of a sudden to becoming remarkably specific. And that is absolutely critical because our faith has to be real and specific and personal. I like what Eugene Peterson says about this, you are the man. He says this, he says, the gospel is never a commentary on ideas or culture or conditions. It's always about actual persons, actual pain, actual trouble, actual sin. You, me, who you are and what you've done, who I am and what I have done. It is both easy and common to lose this focus, to let the gospel blur into generalized pronouncements, boozy cosmic opinions, and religious indignation. The gospel, our faith, always begins not with your neighbor and not with your enemy. It always begins with you. Otherwise, it is never able to actually infiltrate you, to speak to you, or to change you in any way. It simply remains a religion. You are the man. You are the woman. And David does not then, or Nathan does not then just let David off the hook after this. He continues. He reminds him of all the things that God had given to him, how he had given him everything that he had. And in the midst of all that giving, David had decided to take, as Stanley Mast puts it, David gave gift, gave way for grab. And the consequences of that are remarkably real and painful. The consequences of David's sin are real and painful. Now this gets to what is probably the most uncomfortable part of this chapter, for me at least, there's two parts of it that are remarkably uncomfortable. The first that we must at least give voice to is the fact that this child is going to die. Now, I've tried to figure out, I've I've been very appreciative of commentaries who when they look at this and think about this child dying who have said, look, we can try to explain it and if you want, we can talk about that. There are lots of different explanations as to why that would have happened. Lots of different ways to try to make it, okay, now this makes sense. But I'm appreciative of those who have gone before me who have said, look, while it could be perhaps that the worst thing that a pastor can say is, I don't know, the truth is this, there are situations and passages like this that we simply don't necessarily have the answer to. It does not make sense. And the reality, of course, at times like this is that we may want to just say, now, how is this even possible? This doesn't quite seem to mesh with how I understand God. And in those moments, the best thing that we can do is simply create space to be able to say, it doesn't make sense. Why would this make sense? And to willingly acknowledge, and this is a great step of faith, that God's ways are not our ways. And that though this may not make sense right now, we pray and trust that for God it makes sense that whatever the reasoning was behind this, that we may continue to struggle with, we are going to trust that God understands in the ways in which God speaks. And that doesn't mean that we have to like it. It doesn't mean that we can't get upset by it. It doesn't mean that we can't wrestle with it. All those things, I think, are good and right. But all that said, What we cannot allow to happen is for that to distract us from what is at the core of what is happening here. 
which is the fact that sin has long-lasting implications. Because the story goes on, of course, and all the different things that now are going to happen because of David's brokenness. And the truth is, we don't like that. We don't want there to be long-term implications for the sin of David, and we don't want it to be long-term implications for our own sin and our own brokenness. We want, we love the phrase forgive and forget, but the truth is, it's just not actually true. Most of us cannot forget it because the implications are long-term. Uriah did not come back from the dead. Bathsheba is scarred forever because of what happened. The children of David struggle, as the scripture says, and as you see as you continue to look at the story of David, and much of that coming from what they have seen their father do. There are long-term implications. Now, please hear me. There is great forgiveness, and God loves to work through our brokenness and pain. But the truth is that this brokenness and pain will oftentimes leave scars that do not simply get erased. Last week, after talking about the the sin oftentimes of religious leaders and the implications of that and the brokenness, I talked to several folks, both on Sunday and then throughout the week, about people who were looking back at religious leaders in their lives who immediately they thought of when we talked about this. And some of these things had happened decades earlier, and they continue to remember that and feel the pain of that loss. And it does little good for us to pretend as if just because you have said you are sorry or just because you have acted forgiveness that all of a sudden we can forget everything that has happened. But please hear me. Even in the midst of that, it does not mean that confession is unimportant because the truth is this. The only way, the way in which God is able to work in the midst of that sin and brokenness is when we are willing to take the first step of confession and repentance. And this is perhaps one of the most striking things about this particular story is the confession of David. And I want us to hear this. What does he say after all of this, after after Nathan makes it abundantly clear what his sin was and the consequences of those sin, what did David say? David simply said, I have sinned against the Lord. It's literally, in the Hebrew, it is only two words. Only two words. A lot of uh, scholars contrast this confession of David with, with Saul's. You can go back and look at it if you want to in 1 Samuel 15. Uh, uh, Saul is confronted by the prophet Samuel. And when Saul's confronted by Samuel, what does he do? Well, first he, he, he says, oh, it's actually somebody else. He, he blames somebody else. The second thing he does uh, is he says, oh, well, you know what? Yeah, but look at all the good things I've done. This is a Jerry Deck special in, the, in, in, in my relationship with Megan. Whenever there's something around the house, you know, that I was supposed to have getting done, gotten done, I didn't do it. I mean, honestly, it is like this. I'm like, yeah, yeah, but look at all these other things. It's a, this great kind of distraction. It doesn't work there either, if you're curious. And the third thing he does is just kind of downplays, oh, it's not that big of a deal, this thing. It's not, you know, it's not, it's not. And of course, what does that mean? He spends all this time blaming. He spends all this time kind of in this misdirection, all these excuses. 
which of course then just takes away from any actual confession. There's no real healing that occurs because the confession is not really all of that genuine. It's this remarkable way in which, in which and I want us to hear this, in which David confesses without caveat. How hard is it to simply say, I am sorry, without following it up with some flimsy follow-up or some caveat that makes it a little bit less bad? I think it was maybe Stan in the Scott and Stan videos that said, if you want to know why is David someone after God's own heart, a man after God's own heart, it's clearly not because he's perfect. It's because in moments like this, at least he is able to simply say, I have sinned, I am sorry, I repent. We struggle with that, at least most of us. Because we feel like to do so all of a sudden makes us less than. It's remarkable how defensive we can get in these moments. We, we're afraid that people will think less than us. We're afraid that we're going to have to flog ourselves. We're, we're afraid it means that we just must be absolutely the worst people at all. What we, what we don't realize is that actually when you confess, what it does is an admittance to this thing. It is an admittance to the fact that you are human. We've talked about this a lot lately. It, it's this admittance that you are human, which is an absolute gift. I want to say this again. We spend an inordinate amount of time trying, trying to convince other people and ourselves that we are not actually human trying to convince others and ourselves that we are God-like in some way, that we do not make mistakes, that we have it all together. And there is a remarkable gift in being able to simply say, I am flawed. I got this wrong. Not as a way of saying, oh, okay, well, then I'll just continue to live in that, no problem. But as in a way of just simply being able to say, I am not perfect, I'm human. And there is this gift in this willingness to confess that I don't think that we fully understand. James K.A. Smith, uh, he talks about uh, the gift of confession. And in so doing, he, he brings up um, the show, maybe you've seen it, called True Detective. And uh, it, was a, it was kind of the series uh, with Matt McConaughey and Woody Harrelson. I'm not necessarily recommending it. I'm just saying that's where he got it. And here's what he, he, he talks about how they have this one detective whose name is Rust. And Rust is really good at getting people to confess. So whenever, you know, they have to go into the interrogation room, you always want Rust in there because he's really good at it. And asked why, Rust, why are you so good at getting people to confess? Here's what Rust says. He says, look, everybody knows there's something wrong with them. They just don't know what it is. Everybody wants confession. Everybody wants some cathartic narrative for it. The guilty especially. And everybody's guilty. I love that. This is not a preacher trying to get people to confess of something. This is simply a keen observation by a TV series that says this. The truth is that all of us deep down know that we don't have it all together. All of us know that we are broken and sinful. And what they offer, what 
what Rust is offering is he's giving them this gift of saying, now you can just be honest. And in so many ways, this is exactly what the church is called to do and to be. It is to be that interrogation room, if you will. We're not interrogating anybody. Don't get nervous. That will be next week. We're not doing that this week. But the point is this, to be a place that cultivates that kind of honesty because we genuinely believe it's a gift. I know it's hard to believe that confession is a gift, But when you finally begin to confess, here's what happened. You, A, you begin to exhale because you no longer have to keep up this facade. And secondly, you are able to inhale the grace and the love of God. You see, confession draws you closer to God. I love what um, um, Psalm 103 says. I just want you to hear this. It says this, and you know this. It says, As a father has compassion for his children, so the Lord has compassion for those who fear him. For he knows how we were made. He remembers that we are dust. I love that. God made you. God knows your imperfections. And when we are able to confess those things, we then are drawn to God. I mean, here's what's striking. What's striking is that so many of us as Christians struggle with confession, but we are Christians, which means we believe in Jesus Christ. And the reason why Jesus Christ came down to die on the cross is because of our sin. It's almost comical if you think about it. I mean, think about if you were Jesus and you're sitting there and you're like, wait, why are you not just admitting this thing? Why are you struggling with this? Do you forget this is the whole reason I came in the first place? It is sitting there as this gift of what we have. And so my encouragement for us this morning is to continue to think about what a witness it can be to the world around us. What would it be like in your workplace If when something happened, you did not spend an inordinate amount of time trying to explain it away or blame someone else or say, you see all these good things I've done? What are you talking about? What if you just simply said, I'm sorry? How might that that play out? Or what if with your neighbors, right? Maybe if you did something, well, you, you let the dog go over to the other side and something happened as happens. And what if you just said, hey, I'm sorry. What if at home you were able to just simply say, I'm sorry? What might that teach if you have children at home? What might that teach the children? How might the children then be able to go out to school and whenever they're being accused of something, maybe something that they've done, rather than coming up with all these reasons why that's okay, what if they just simply said, I'm sorry? What if Christians were known as being the people who simply said, I am sorry, and were able to do that because, again, we remember the cross and the whole reason why Jesus came in the first place. We are fully human. And Jesus, who was fully human and fully divine, came to this earth for our sin and brokenness. And so in this moment, we cultivate a spirit of confession. Every month when we come together, we have the bread and the cup, and we are reminded every month of our brokenness and of the fact that Jesus came in the midst of that brokenness and was broken for us. And so this morning, I want us to, I want us to say 
a confession together. And I'm, we're going to say it together. And then after that, I'm just going to leave some space, some quiet for you just to confess to yourself. You don't need to say it out loud. I suppose you could if you want to, but don't. Uh, just keep it there to yourself, but, but know that. And perhaps there's somebody in the midst of that that comes to mind. Maybe there's a confession that you haven't yet made, or maybe you made it, but you made it with as many caveats as there could possibly be. And maybe what you're called to is just to simply confess. And so I want us to out loud, I want us to say this confession together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry And we humbly repent for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways for the glory of your name. And now let's just take a moment to confess in silence.